Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. I remind you this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing those thing, these things. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us, that we might see the word of God as a feast worthy to be visited upon, set aside time for, and treasured. We pray, Lord, that you would help us, that we might store up your word in our heart, that we might not sin against you, but also that we might store up your word in our hearts so that we can praise you in a knowledgeable way. And with all joy, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. One has, John Flavel in The Fountain of Life, has said this, the study of Jesus is the noblest subject that ever a soul spent itself upon. The angels stoop to look into this deep abyss, studying Christ stamps a heavenly glory upon the contemplating soul. How little do we know of Christ in comparison with what we might have known? Indeed, he is right to contemplate, to think upon, to meditate, to consider, to rightly sit and and think deeply upon the Lord Jesus Christ and what the Word says and speaks of him is the highest and noblest chief pursuit of the soul. It is a glorious thing to consider, to come away even for a moment and to think about Jesus. This is such an opportunity this morning for us in light of this passage, verses 44 through 49, concern the last three hours, as it were, of Jesus' life. He is is hung from 9 a.m. until uh, 12 noon, and then from that point forward until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the day has gone dark. I reject the idea that God simply used natural means. If we're always doing that with the miracles we observe in Scripture, then we remove the the vitality and the strength, the superiority and the immensity of the sovereignty of God from the equation of biblical recount, uh, recounting and stories of the miracles of the Lord. Uh, one could say that, well, an eclipse happened when Jesus was there on the cross, but I'd I'd rather simply accept the language of the passage in its simplest form. God made black the sun. God brought darkness at midday until 3 p.m. It was an extraordinary moment, and it said something of God, and it said something of the transaction taking place on that cross. It declared something in, in, in glorious 
display of what God was doing for sinners' sake. In the midst of all of this, we are told in these short few verses of cataclysmic, momentous, cosmic significant uh, events. And there are three in this passage, the first of which is simply death. We'll see death and then we'll see, (coughs) pardon me, We'll see death, and then we'll see darkness, and then destruction. So first, death. Jesus is there on the cross. It is the, it is, he's recording for us in these verses, the the hours between the sixth hour and the ninth hour. So the day for Jewish persons would begin at 6 a.m. when the sun was typically up, and it would end at 3 p.m., uh, or, or the ninth hour would be 3 p.m. So from about noon until 3 p.m., the sun was obscured. Now, God didn't cause the sun to go out, but rather the sun was covered. The sun was obscured. The sun was dimmed. The sun, the sun was simply covered to those who live and dwell on earth. It was deeply dark. It was not pitch blackness, but it was dark. Dark to such an extent that it was an overwhelming circumstance and people were frightened and fearful. It displayed something of what God was doing in Jesus Christ there. There was a forsakenness. There is a dereliction in the person of Jesus Christ as, uh, as, as Joshua read earlier from Psalm 22. The agony of Jesus is enduring during that period of time. For three hours, Jesus is in utter, untold, unimaginable agony on the cross. Clearest depiction of the emotional pain of separation from God is in evidence. Separation from the presence, the goodness, the gaze, the appearance, the face, the grace, the kindness, the nearness, common blessing and grace of a benevolent God what Christ experienced in his humanity there on that cross, in his body and soul there on that cross, was the forsakenness of God and the judgment of God against sin. The absence of the benevolent, patient disposition of his Father, his forbearance, the full manifestation of God's righteous anger was poured out on the Son, God is holy, and we spoke briefly on Wednesday evening about God's holiness, his inherent goodness, his, uh, the, the, the absence of evil and wickedness, of evil intent and evil purposes, the, the only presence of righteousness. The holiness of God speaks to his inability to approach or to be in the presence of sin and of wickedness. And so there in that cross... Christ was forsaken. Luke speaks of uh, two, maybe three statements of what Jesus recounted here in his last words during the time of his suffering on the cross in those six hours. And yet uh, they're recorded for us in the other Gospels, as many as seven or eight statements. Uh, I believe there are seven, but it depends on how one reads uh, various passages and verses. But Luke records for us the first statement of Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
And the last statement of Jesus, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Well, Jesus is, during that extraordinary suffering and of judgment of the Father against sin, Jesus says in that one last statement, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. You know, he's quoting scripture from Psalm 31, verse 5. There he simply says exactly what the psalmist has said, but but in the, there are some changes. The psalmist records, uh, Good Lord, uh, good Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he speaks in the next phrase, in verse 6 of Psalm 31, of redemption and of how he has benefited from redemption from God the Father. Jesus cannot pray that concerning himself, for he is not in need of being redeemed. He is not in need of redemption. He is making payment for sin, but he is the righteous Lamb of God. He also changes the, the designation of God to from good Lord to Father. And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit Jesus told us that he would do this, and he would told, he told, told his disciples that he would do this uh, earlier in John's Gospel and earlier conversations with them. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So the active obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ and the absolute sovereignty of Jesus is on display here. He commits his soul, his spirit, into the Father's hands, which then ascends to him when he breathes his last breath. I find it extraordinary, the language that's used here. Having said this, he breathed his last. It's it's, it's language that that leads us into the understanding that Jesus could live and would live as long as he desired to live because he is the author of death and life. He, he, he has the keys to death and life. And having the keys to death and life, he has the, the ability to lay down his life and he has the ability also and the authority to take it back up again. And in that language that Luke records for us here, it leads us to to understand that the timing of his suffering on that cross had been reached. And so he simply, as an act of his own will and a decision of his own will, in full subjection to the Father and having completed exactly what he had purposed to do in completion of what the Father had required of him and for which he had volunteered, he simply took his last breath and then decided to take no others. And in that way, he died. He is sovereign over all the circumstances of his life, on the cro- of his moments on the cross. He is sovereign in his taking breath for hours. And then finally, when his suffering was complete, he is sovereign in the sense that he decides that he is, he is finished and he will breathe no more. His work was done. 
Many observe this death and, the death, and they come to the only logical conclusion that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the person on the cross before them, over whom was emblazoned King of the Jews, that he was innocent. He was innocent. There's a centurion there, a man who is in charge over a hundred men. And perhaps he has participated in the ridicule that was done only hours before. Perhaps he was one who had determined the direction that they would take in that back room when Pilate handed them off to him, him off to them, and, and said, prepare him for crucifixion. And then they put a purple robe on him and a crown of thorns, and they beat him after having beaten him with a cord. And then they spat on him. But he, observing all these things and the conduct of the Savior, having observed all that took place and hearing his words and observing his conduct towards the crowds and his interactions with the crowds and those seven last statements from the Lord and hearing in that last word, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he proclaims, this man is innocent. He says, certainly. In other words, definitely, without a doubt. There can be no question this man was guiltless, innocent. I would just say by way of a secondary intention of the text that Jesus is demonstrating easily for us here, at the very least, an example of what it means to live and die as a believer. Jesus, simply in that moment when he had reached the end of his life, committed himself into the hands of his Father. He committed his spirit into the Father's hands. We are told in Scripture that we are to commit ourselves into the hands of our faithful Savior. He leads us, he leads us, he leaves us that example, not one on the surface merely, but he shows us what it is to be loved by God and to love God with all the full capacity of one's mind and body and heart and soul. He shows us what it means to be consumed with God and how it mean, what it means to love God with the entirety of one's life and, and what it means to, for one's drink and one's meat to be the will of the Father in obedience. J.C. Ryle says on this passage that there's a sense in which our Lord's words supply a lesson to all true Christians. They show us the manner in which death should be met by all God's children. They afford an example by which every believer should try to follow. Like our master, we should not be afraid to confront the king of terrors, death. We should regard death as a vanquished enemy whose sting has been taken away by Christ's death. We should think of him as a foe who can hurt our body but a little while, but after that, there's nothing more that he can do. We should await his approaches with calmness and patience and believe that when flesh fails, our soul will be in good keeping. That was the mind of dying Stephen. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That was the mind of the Apostle Paul. When the time of his departure was at hand, he said, I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for all those who are his. Jesus died for all those who are sheep of the living Christ. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, 
And He is your Savior. He died for you on that day in order to transact this ultimate transaction, that He would receive the wrath of God against sin and make payment with His perfection, His life, and His offering of that life unto God physically and truly. And if you have faith in Jesus Christ, indeed, you have life in Him. So we see his death. We also see darkness in this passage. Darkness. Jesus is enduring the judgment of God. What does this darkness say about Jesus when everything went dark? The sun was obscured for three hours. It tells us that judgment and wrath and sorrow, darkness, they're all indicative of God's judgment come into the world against man. You remember back in... Exodus, when God was destroying summarily and symbolically all the gods of Egypt in in his destroying plagues. God was destroying with clarity each and every god and every designation and subheading of every god of the Egyptians. And he destroyed each of them from the god of the Nile to the god of gnats and of flies to the god of physical health and of bodily wholeness. And then lastly, in the great God of Amun-Ra, Pharaoh was under the delusion that he was in some way the son of, of the sun god, Ra. He was under the delusion that he himself was in some way in control of and had his life and vitality in that sun that God himself had created. And what did God do in sending the, one of the last great plagues Darkness over the whole land. Darkness of a pitch black variety such that they could not see anything. An ink black darkness. But there was a ray of light in that land of Goshen for the people of Israel. But darkness all surrounding. God was displaying his judgment against Ra, the imaginary sun god of the Egyptian people. He was clarifying to Pharaoh that Pharaoh was in no way a god. And secondly, in no way was he in control of what is bright and good. And God was declaring, thirdly, that he was in fact judged. Judged by the only true God. We've seen darkness at other times. We've seen darkness recorded in Scripture, but I think one in particular helps us to understand the significance of darkness here. That passage is taken from Amos, Amos chapter 8, verse 9 and following. God is threatening his people who have been deeply ungodly, who have transgressed his covenant, who have had taken little or no interest in him, have offered only half-heartedly the offerings and sacrifices. Their hearts are far from God. And he says this in judgment. And on that day, the day of judgment that God will send soon, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. And I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, 
but they shall not find it. Well, here's what's happening on that cross. As darkness descends upon the land, God is fulfilling what Amos recorded in chapter 8. But one thing he has done through grace and through mercy, God is pouring out that judgment upon upon his son. Instead of pouring it out upon his people, according to his grace, he is pouring it out upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The day of judgment has come, but it is not descended upon his people. They will receive mercy through that judgment, which is descending even in that moment upon the son. Psalm 22, as Joshua read earlier, depicts the clear condition of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag with the head. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of the earth. What God is doing in that darkness is laying the Lord Jesus Christ in the dust of the earth as he is enduring the most the worst judgment ever endured by a physical being, God pouring out all of those Old Testament threats wrought by every Old Testament prophet when God's people went, away, went awry and pursued their own ends repeatedly time and again, when God threatened time and again that he would judge them according to what is in their heart, when God had warned them continually if they did not seek him, If they did not turn from their evil ways, he would judge them according to his righteousness. Here is God fulfilling every Old Testament threat perfectly in his glorious son on the cross. Christ is not just experiencing some measure of displeasure. He is is receiving the full, the infinite, the extraordinary righteous anger of God against sin. He is receiving all that was due for sinners, for all the sins that they, that we ourselves are guilty of, and our condition as sinners that makes us guilty even before we are born. That day of judgment is depicted so clearly in the cross of Christ as in that darkness The Lord Jesus Christ for three hours suffered the judgment of God. Thirdly, we see here the destruction. What happens there in that cross is Christ is offering up his life. And further, more than that, he is enduring the judgment of God the Father. But something happens that Luke records for us also that is also taking place there is a a curtain that is torn in two. And Jesus is, what he's doing here is he is opening a new and living way. There is a curtain that has been torn in two. And it's that curtain that is recorded in Exodus chapter 26. And it says, as God gives his directions to, to Moses and to the people, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. 
It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it, and you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate you from the holy place, uh, the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. If you think about the temple, there was the holy place, and then in the inner sanctum, the most holy place. There was this thick curtain. There was not some simple curtain like the curtains that we have here in our sanctuary today. It was a curtain that was so thick that it would have been very difficult for one to move it aside and to in some way mistakenly or briefly or by mistake stick their hand through or or peek through or that somehow the wind could move it. It was very, very thick. It was very, very tall. It covered from head, from, from ceiling to floor such that no one could see through or see by it. And in that place, within the most holy place, was the Ark of the Covenant of God. And the cherubim who stood over it in guard, as it were, at least in symbol. That curtain was torn immediately and fully from top to bottom. And that place where the most holy place, where, where God dwelt in his presence amongst the people, there were... Uh, it, the Ark of the Covenant would, would sit, and there once per year when the priest would enter into that most holy place, he would bring with him blood, and he would make a sprinkled offering of blood for the sins of both himself and the people. And he would pray, and they would attach to him a rope in case he was struck dead by the very presence of God. What does it mean when that veil is torn in two? it means that there is an end to separation, an end to separation. The veil's existence is entirely due to the sin of mankind and the holiness of God. Sin wove this separation. When atonement is made for sin, the barrier is removed and the holiness of God comes near and we are welcomed into his presence. This says something about the redeemed sinner. Adam and Eve in the garden forsook their relationship with God. They sinned against God. And from that point forward, they died. And they began to die physically, but spiritually as well. They experienced death. And some portion of that was a death of their relationship with God. They no longer walked in the garden with God. God was at a distance from them. And and drawing near to God and interceding before and with God became difficult. And for the Israelites, God had determined that he would come and dwell amongst them. But it was absolutely certain that there had to be a separation between themselves and him. For they were a sinful people, and he himself is holy. And for a holy God, there must be a a separation from sinners. Until they are made completely and fully and totally holy. Until they are set apart as unto God. Until they are sanctified and until they are made righteous before him. If there is any residue of sin remaining in them that is unforgiven, it cannot be reconciled fully. It cannot be said that they are fully and completely reconciled to God. 
But because that curtain is torn in two, it tells us that all those who are in Christ, who are reconciled to God, for whom Christ has made full payment for sin, it clarifies to us that the redeemed sinner who has faith in Jesus Christ is fully and completely and wholly in the Son of God, acceptable in God's sight, has full and direct approach into the presence of God. And even Peter affirms this in his first letter, clarifying that the, the, the priesthood of all believers, that we no longer need a priest, a religious authority, to in some way make intercession for us between ourselves and God, that we have direct access. And uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us that we may boldly approach the throne of grace in prayer. In other words, there is no obstruction that is in some way preventing us from having intimate fellowship with God. There is no more obstruction in our way that prevents us from approaching boldly that throne of grace daily, continually, perpetually. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Ephesians 3.11, this was according to the eternal purpose of, of God that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Because you have faith in Jesus Christ, you're accepted of the beloved Father. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have direct access to God. And more than that, you have been reconciled to him. It means the end of all Jewish cleanliness and obligations for legal and forensic means affected through persistent obedience and ritual cleanliness and purification rites, the end of the Jewish religious system, sacrifices, feasts, holy days. None of those things could in any way wash us clean of our sins. They were, they were symbolic of what Christ Jesus and his blood will do for us. I think there's a further significance in the torn veil. In the story of Israel, the most vivid instance of this theme was this widely woven curtain hanging there as a constant indication that there must be a separation between a holy God and his covenant people. A holy place separated from the most holy place, perpetually guarding the holiest holy place where there was mercy, the mercy seat and the merciful presence of God. There's something extraordinary found in Revelation chapter 11. John is taken in the spirit and he beholds and he sees God's temple, God's throne in the most holy place. And, and, and what he sees is no curtain blocks the way. And he sees that the doors are opened. He sees that the doors are opened and the heavenly temple, its doors stand perpetually open as Revelation chapter 11, 15 says. And what's inside those doors that are open? The Ark of the Covenant. That one object that was created by God and given directions to Moses and the people to provide for them to make an offering for sin and to be purified of their sins before God. Where God would meet and be pleased, his wrath being turned aside by the offering of blood 
It's there in the very court of God. It's there in the very presence of God. And the doors are wide open. And so all the priestly courts and the the court of women and the court of Gentiles and all of the various obstructions there in the temple, all of those various places to which one could not go, ultimately leading into the holy place where only the priests could go, and then into the holy of holies where only the chief and high priest could go, only once per year, one individual at a time. All of those are nullified, and now we have a ministry where we may boldly approach God and seek mercy to help in time of need. And that that place, that symbolic place, that presence is there at the very the very face of God. And that that mercy seat, that that place where God's justice and wrath meet in full satisfaction where we may boldly approach and find their grace and mercy because offering and sacrifice have been made and blood is turned aside wrath is the person of Jesus Christ. It is because Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father that you and I may boldly approach day in, day out and find grace and mercy to help in time of need. So fundamentally in this passage, this, what Jesus is doing, is he is establishing fellowship with God for his people. He is reconciling us to God through his body and blood by enduring the wrath and curse of God and yielding his life as an offering for sin. What Adam and Eve lost in the garden, Jesus Christ has taken it up again and is doing it richly for his people. There are many passages throughout Scripture that tell us the significance of what Christ has done for us. First, second Corinthians chapter five, verse 16 and following. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Later on in the same passage, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. First Peter tells us also in chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Hebrews 10, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. How do you respond to all of this in conclusion? How do we respond? Well, I think we see how to respond in the instances in 
in the ways in which the various people who saw Jesus responded. There is first and foremost the centurion, this man over a hundred men. And he has observed everything that Jesus has endured. He has seen his conduct. He has heard his words, his spoken words. He has heard his communication with the Father. He has seen his interactions with his disciples. And he has seen the distance of his disciples away from him, even in this last moment. And he comes to one searing conclusion. This person on the cross. Now this man has seen many executions and he has participated in many crucifixions. It was a delight for him to do it. He was a coarse, wretched, typical Roman soldier. And he has seen all sorts of death. Maybe he would even joke with his fellow soldiers about it. Did you see the last breath of that one? Did you see how his legs, we had to break him? And do you see how he reacted and what happened when we poked a hole in their side? And did you see what the three who we hung on the cross today looked like? He didn't do that in this instance. There's no coarse jesting. There's no proclamation that this was done right. There's no coarse presumption of Jesus's responsibility and just judgment no he comes to one conclusion this pagan man this rough character he looks at Jesus he has heard everything and he says absolutely he is innocent if you believe that Jesus died innocently on the cross today and you believe that he died innocently for the sake of of guilty men and women, boys and girls like ourselves, then I'll tell you, you have believed you, you, you have believed to such a degree that the grace of God is before you, freely open to you. You have believed certain things that only the Holy Spirit can lead a person to the conviction of. And if one believes that Jesus Christ died innocently on the cross, for sinner's sake, of which you yourself are one, you are saved, you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you have immediate entrance before God, and that curtain which stood before between God and his people symbolically has been removed to such an extent that you are now in the bosom of your Savior. And the one who sits at the right hand of God the Father you are so joined in union with Him that you cannot be separated from Him. And what this says is that when you are struggling with your sins and you have hear that voice in the back of your mind that condemns you and says you couldn't possibly be saved and you can't possibly be reconciled to God and surely He's going to judge you for your sins and surely He's going to judge you for the, the distance that you feel and the neglect of all the things that you know you ought to be doing. And He is showing you anew that you have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. You are in the bosom of your beloved Savior. He is joined to you, and because of Him... You cannot be cast aside. Your name will not be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. It has been written there indelibly. The curtain has been torn in two. Your Father, you have been reconciled to Him. You have been reconciled to Him. And He is now yours. And you are 
kids. Certainly this man is innocent. Every believer believes that, that Jesus, the innocent and perfect Lamb of God, was received by the Father as an appropriate sacrifice for sin. The crowd responds, and this is further depicting how we ought to respond to the truths of what we hear this morning. The crowd responds and they are beating their breasts. Now, many of us don't do that. If we go to a funeral today, we don't typically see people breathing their breasts. But it was a Jewish response to death. It was an indication of great sorrow. They would beat their breasts in emotional and visible outbursts in protestation against death. And there was sorrow evident there of immense sorrow and of grief. And the crowd, I think, is responding to what they have observed and they are responding to what Jesus has just done. If you open to the first few chapters of Acts, we read for Luke records for us there that when Peter preached and he preached that sermon where he he stood before all of them and he said, that man whom you condemned to death, whom you put to death, God has lifted up as an offering and a sacrifice for sin. What did they do? They cried out, how must we be saved? How how can we be saved? And thousands were added to the church daily. I believe that work had begun on this day when they who had stood before only hours before crying out, crucify him. Crucify him. We want Barabbas rather than Jesus. There at the last, the Holy Spirit already moving in the hearts of sinful people. They are now beating their breasts. They understand that what they have done is they have put the very innocent Lamb of God on that cross. But what they have done, God, God is doing for their redemption. And so they observe and they watch and they are filled with sorrow. So this morning, what we do with passages like this and the recounting of the story of the death of Jesus is we need to respond. We need to respond. How do you respond? Well, first, if you don't have faith in Christ, you respond and believe because all of that, what we observe being poured out on Christ, that untold judgment and that untold suffering will be yours if you die without Jesus Christ. He who would come with joy and take you into his breast will come in judgment against you for you have rejected and you have refused the Lord Jesus. He who would come in love with blessing will come with righteous judgment. And whereas he could come as your Savior, Because you have rejected him, he will come in full and awesome, horrible judgment. So receive the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in his innocence and in your guilt. If you believe in his innocence, certainly you can proclaim and, and, and conversely and appropriately respond, I am guilty, but he is innocent. He was innocent, but I, I am guilty. But in Christ... I am free from guilt and its sin. I have been set free. 
respond to what you observe there, even as believers to come uh, into that place where into that holy of holies and to see that Jesus Christ is accepted of his beloved father. He has committed himself into his father's care. And we, too, can follow his example, committing ourselves body, soul, spirit into the hands of our heavenly father. Being willing to endure anything in this life for the sake of having and knowing Jesus Christ. Being reminded of the gospel and of its implications for us. If he died for me, should I not live for him? If he died for me, should not the totality of my life be one of a demonstration of my devotion to him, my connection and union with him, my love for him, my delight in the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is my Savior. The believer can also respond with assurance, being assured of God's love and of Christ's love for you. Because he has died for you. And to the last, he breathed purposefully. Until that last breath, he breathed his last. Having accomplished all that he intended, that you might be reconciled to God. Can we do no less than to live for him? Let's pray.